He will call people up wherever they are. You will not be able to hide. God Almighty will call up the dead of all time, the lost of all time. And as we'll see in a moment, He'll create a new body for them suited for the lake of fire. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of chapter 20 in our study of the Revelation. And last week we began a message entitled, The Destiny of the Doomed. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy discusses how the Bible teaches that there will be two distinct and different types of resurrections. As we rejoin him, he explains that the first type of resurrection will consist of no one but saved people, and the second resurrection will only consist of those who have never trusted Christ for salvation. The Bible is very clear there are two resurrections. The first is that of the saved. It leads to blessing. The second, separated by a thousand years, is that of the lost, and it leads to judgment. And we'll see in a moment that no one in the first resurrection will be lost, and no one in the second resurrection will be saved. So we need to ask an important question. If this is the first resurrection, if you've read your Bible at all, then you know there have already been some resurrections that have taken place before this. So in what sense is this the first resurrection? I mean, think about it. Christ, the first fruits, as Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 15, in fitting with the feast of first fruits, there are various feasts in the Old Testament, four in the spring, three in the fall, the three fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled prophetically. But each of the feasts picture what the Messiah is going to accomplish on behalf of the church as well as Israel. And at the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath, we would call that Sunday today, the, the, the priests would be given a single stalk of grain, and it was representative of Jesus, who's the first fruit. He is the first one ever to be raised from the dead. There were people who were raised to life only to die again, but Jesus was the first ever to be resurrected from the dead in a glorified body. And if you remember from Matthew 27, immediately after his resurrection, the Bible says a select number of tombs were opened, and certain Old Testament saints walked around the city of Jerusalem before they are seemingly brought up into heaven. So we already have seen some people raised, not to mention Paul speaks, for we shall not all sleep, and the twinkling of an eye, that's faster than you can blink your eye, very, very quickly, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up, rapto in the Latin Bible, and so we use the term rapture. When you, someone says to you, well, the term rapture is not in the Bible, no, it's not, not in the English Bible. Neither is the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's a biblical truth. You call it what you want. It's the catching up of the church. It's the rapture. We'll be caught up. We'll meet the Lord in the air. That happens all the way back in chapter 4. Then in Daniel chapter 12, and we've already looked at this earlier in the 20th chapter, Old Testament saints are raised at the end of Jacob's trouble, after the great tribulation, along with what we just read in these two verses in chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, tribulation saints who are beheaded, they too are raised at the second coming. So in what sense is this the first resurrection? 
Well, clearly, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the focus is not about the time of the resurrection as it is the kind of resurrection. There are two kinds of resurrection, just like there are two kinds of death. There's the first death, which results in burial, and then there is what John describes in our chapter this morning as the second death, which describes someone who's being cast into the lake of fire. Even so, there are two kinds of resurrections. There is the resurrection of the righteous, and there is the resurrection of the wicked. And the first resurrection program is separated by the second resurrection program by 1,000 years. And just as the first death did not occur all in one moment, but over millennia of time as people individually one by one die, even so the first resurrection program doesn't take place in one moment. It happens over a period of time as various Uh, groups are brought out of the grave. Now, keep that in mind as we read about the people who are being judged here in verse 12. Please notice how these dead are described. He says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before their throne. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that no one is excluded from this judgment. No one is so great that they can miss it and be overlooked And no one is so small that God will just go by them. No one is so great that they are superior where they won't meet God in this judgment. And no one is so small that God will overlook them. There's no big shots and little shots at this judgment. Everyone here is lost. There's no movers and shakers who somehow can escape this judgment. The emperors, the dictators, the prime ministers, the presidents... The wealthy, the well-connected will stand alongside the paupers of this world, people that no one ever even knew their name. Doesn't matter how much education you've had. Doesn't matter how much culture or money you've acquired. It doesn't matter how much fame you had in this life. Every single person, the great and the small, will meet God at this judgment, kings and paupers alike. Now, I suppose you could take the great and the small and further subdivide them into at least four categories that are highlighted in the New Testament. First, there's the man who is the out-and-out sinner, the man who hates God, who hates Christ, who hates the Bible, who hates preaching, who hates pastors. He hates the things of God. He will be in this judgment. He lives for sin. He lives for self. In one sense, whether he knows it or not, he is living for the devil. And he shakes his puny fist in the face of God Almighty as if somehow he can outsmart God and that he is greater than God. Now, I assume that there is none here like that this morning unless you've come to mock me and make fun. But I want to tell you the Madeline Murray O'Hares, the Bill Mahas, the Hitlers, the Hefners, the Madonnas, they'll all be there. The drug pusher, the pornographer, the perverts, the out-and-out God-haters, they'll all be there. That's the first category amongst the great and the small, but there's a second dimension to this group, and it's those that I call the self-righteous. I'm convinced because Jesus taught it in Luke chapter 18 that hell will be filled with self-righteous people. They think the message I preach is for the thief, the murderer, the pimp, the drug addict, the drunk, but it's not for them because they are, quote-unquote, a good person. Like the Pharisee of old, they don't see their need to be saved. 
And that's why on one occasion to some highly religious men, Jesus said the prostitutes and tax collectors are more likely candidates for the kingdom of God than you are. On another day to the same group of kinds of religious, self-righteous men, he said it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save, quote-unquote, the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. The self-righteous man thinks he has no need to be saved because when he looks at his, himself next to the prostitute, he thinks he's just sterling. But God measures us by Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and we all fall short and makes the ground level. And I fear that millions of Americans because I speak to them every week. Why should God let you into heaven? And they begin to rattle off one work after another. That millions of Americans in their self-righteousness will be damned. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness, and by the way, that's what you need if you're ever going to meet God. You need the righteousness of God. You need the perfection that He has. And your righteousness, like mine, falls woefully short. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Do you know what that means? It simply means that if you could become righteous, if you could be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, by your church membership, by your baptism, by following the golden rule, or anything else you can think of, then Calvary was the blunder of the ages. God was a fool to have sent His Son to die if you could have earned your way. But God was no fool. You cannot save yourself. And so the self-righteous are included in the great and the small. Some people are going to hell because they are immoral and drunks and homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators and anything else that's wrong that you can think of. But other people are going to hell because... They are self-righteous. They've never done any of those things. From the world's perspective, they are living a decent, clean life. Now, there's a third group included in the great and small, and I will call him the procrastinator. These are people who know they are sinful. They know they need to be saved, but they put it off. These are people who, in essence, listen to the evil one who says, not now, not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, just later. And I want to tell you, as you read the New Testament, you discover that there's an urgency to respond today. Today is the day of salvation. And there are millions of people in hell this morning who would give a million words, words like this one if somehow they could make a decision for Jesus, but they cannot. You see, the procrastinator... And I'm sure there's probably some listening to my voice this morning. He just puts it off. He thinks later and he continues to flirt with sin and play with sin. And later I'll become a Christian. But every time you tell God Almighty, no, who said today you'd be saved, you should be saved, your heart doesn't get softer. It gets harder and it becomes more callous. And it's a foolish thing to procrastinate. Now, there's a fourth group to be included in the great and small, and I suppose it's the saddest group of all. It's not the out-and-out -out sinner. It's not the self-righteous man. It's not the procrastinator. It's the church member. The church member who's never truly been saved. 
People who have gotten their names on the church books, on the church roll, but they've never had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I am convinced that there are people who come here year after year. I'm not their judge. Christ is. Who are lost. Why am I convinced of that? Because Jesus said it would be true in every church. Where the wheat and the tare would be mixed together until the time of the judgment where there would be people who would outwardly claim to be born-again Christians, and the Lord Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. So here's John. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And I want to tell you this morning, the devil doesn't care how he takes you to hell, whether you are drunk in the gutter, lying there in your vomit, or whether you are all cleaned up and sitting in the church pew this morning, he's just glad to have you however he can get you. Listen, there's the place of the judgment. There's the person over the judgment. There's the people at the judgment. Fourth, I want you to think about the principle for the judgment. What is the principle for this judgment? Let's continue reading now in verse 12 and verse 13. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, underscored in your thinking, according to their deeds. Again in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, how? According to their deeds. Now, death here is a synonym for the grave, the place of burial, and Hades for the soul. The grave has the body, Hades has the soul. Now understand, as we'll see in a moment, just like for the Christian, absent from the body, present with the Lord, for the unbeliever who dies today, absent from the body, he's present in Hades. But that's not the final resting place of every unbeliever, as John will highlight for us. Hades is the holding place for lost people. It's the jail, so to speak, for departed spirits until they meet the final place of judgment in the lake of fire. Just like today, a man who commits multiple murders and he goes to jail and he waits until his trial comes and then he is judged and sentenced to his punishment. Even so, those who die without the Lord Jesus, they immediately go into Hades and they are awaiting the resurrection of their bodies at the great white throne judgment where they will give the final accounting. And it doesn't matter if they are in the dirt of the ground or the depths of the sea. It's a common first century myth written in literature outside of the Bible. Many thought that somehow if you died at sea, your body would be eaten by fish and you would cease to exist and you could escape the judgment of God. And God wants us to know there's no escape, whether you are lost at sea or buried in a grave, from the seas, from the frozen arctics, from the steamy jungles, wherever you are, God will call up the dead of all time before this great throne. It doesn't matter if your body was burned in a fire, incinerated in a crematorium, or buried and turned to dust. He will raise it up. In death... And Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. 
Now understand that when a man goes to hell, the body he has today is not fitted for hell any more than the body I have today is fitted for heaven. Paul said this mortality must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I need a new body, an eternal body like Christ suited to walk on streets of gold. Even so, the lost man, his body that he's in today is not suited for the place of eternal judgment. God will raise up a new body for him. And God won't have to go to some courtroom to get some extradition papers to call people up and summons them into his courtroom. As the supreme judge here of the whole universe, he will call people up wherever they are. You will not be able to hide God Almighty will call up the dead of all time, the lost of all time, and as we'll see in a moment, He'll create a new body for them suited for the lake of fire. Now, twice over in verses 12 and 13, I hope you underlined it or circled it, we are told that these people are judged according to their deeds. The books were opened and the dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that God is keeping a record of everything. Everything that you do, every thought that you've ever had, God writes it down. Every word that you've ever uttered, God has recorded it in his book with indelible ink. It is there forever. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul the apostle wrote, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. That means things that no one else knows. God knows, and he wrote them here in your book. You think, well, I got away with it. No one knew it but me. God knew it. He wrote it down. Indeed, be sure the Scripture says your sin will find you out. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12? But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Think about that. Words of profanity, words of dishonesty, words of exaggeration, words of gossip, God wrote it down. Jesus said, nothing is covered that will not be uncovered. Everything, word, thought, and deed that was wrong have been written in God's books. There are some books, it's plural, Biblia, we got our word Bible from it. It's actually a plural word, Biblia. That is, we have 66 books within one, but it simply means scrolls or books. Now, we're not told precisely how many books there are. However, what will be horrifying to many people is that the omniscient, omnipresent God wrote down everything and underscore it. Literally, it's rather wooden, but it says each one or each of us shall be judged according to his deeds. Now, why does God do this? Remember what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 16? The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and will repay every man. How? According to their deeds. Paul says the exact same truth in Romans 2, that he will render to each person according to his deeds. Now, remember, in this courtroom, in this place, it's not to determine if you go to heaven or hell. Everyone in this judgment, without exception, goes into the lake of fire. This is not a judgment where God takes the good deeds and the bad deeds, and he sees if one outweighs the other. There's no such judgment in Scripture. 
And yet these people are being judged according to their deeds. For what reason? For two reasons given in the Holy Scripture. One is their deeds will prove whether or not they've ever met Jesus. You see, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. Paul can speak of those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. There's all kinds of people in this world who say they are born again, and their life is unchanged. They have no love for the things of God, for the people of God, for the will of God, and they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. You say, but I know a lot of good people who are lost who do a lot of good things. Yes, you do, and I do as well. They do good things for the glory of man, for the praise of self, to appease a guilty conscience, but not for the glory of God, not out of appreciation for a blood redemption that delivered them from the wrath that is going to come. And so the Scripture will say in Isaiah that all of their righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Not all their bad deeds are like filthy rags. But all their righteous deeds, the best things they've ever done before, an absolutely holy God are like filthy rags. And so James says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. That's how absolutely holy God is. So they're judged first according to their deeds because a man's deeds will prove whether or not he's been born again. But secondly, he is judged according to his deeds so that God will mete out just punishment. You see, in every instance, when Jesus or the apostles describe hell, they describe it as a place of horror, as an awful place for anyone who spends eternity there. And yet Jesus taught, as did the apostle Paul, that somehow in the perfect justice of God, there'll be varying degrees of punishment in hell. For instance, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent out the, t the 12, and he said this, whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. He also warned, as recorded in Mark chapter 12, concerning the hypocrites who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Listen, just as heaven is a magnificent, glorious place for any child of God that goes there, it won't be the same for every child of God. We will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 indicates, where God will look at your service as a saved person and he'll reward you accordingly throughout all of eternity. Somehow in the perfect justice of God, hell could be more miserable for a self-righteous man who heard the gospel week after week or to a Hitler who annihilated, they say, now some seven million people. It won't be the same. God in his perfect justice will mete out wrath according to their deeds. Now, that leads me to one more observation. Let's think about the penalty from the judgment, the penalty from the judgment. In verse 14 and in verse 15, we are told, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I want you to notice several aspects of this final penalty as it comes from the hand of God Almighty. First, those who make up the second resurrection without exception are thrown into the lake of fire. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. It is sure, it is certain. There's no fancy lawyer who will be able to get anyone off. It is done. It is a severe place. Again, descriptively here called the lake of fire. There's no shred of mercy here. There's no grace here. You will not be able to plead with God at this place. You cannot get saved here. It will be forever too late. You say, Pastor, I was raised in a church. I was told hell was not a real place. These are just symbols. But it's not a real place. Well, you were lied to. Not to mention, a symbol is never as powerful as the reality. We recently took a picture in our yard of what I call a a purple sunset. It was just breathtaking. I think the greatest sunset maybe I've ever seen in my entire life. And I sent it to my kids, the picture, but it didn't even do justice to what my wife and I saw that day. And I want to tell you that the symbol is never as great as the reality. And what I find so interesting is that more is said about hell from the lips of incarnate love by the Lord Jesus than any other single person in all of the Bible. And when Jesus describes this place of torment, he describes it as an eternal place of torment. He speaks of eternal fire and eternal punishment. Listen to these words from Matthew 25, 46. Of the saved and of the lost, he said, these will go into eternal, ionion is the Greek word, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal, same word, life. The Greek word translated here for eternal to describe the place we call the lake of fire or Gehenna hell is the same word that is described to the place where you and I will spend in eternity. And it's the same word that modifies in 1 Timothy the eternal God. So we have Seventh-day Adventists and cults and other groups that deny the eternal retribution of God. The Scripture is clear. The same word that is used to describe the eternal God in eternal heaven is also used to describe eternal wrath. And no one goes to hell where they're just extinguished. That's the false doctrine of what we call annihilationism. You know, some people say, well, if you're lost, you just, you just get dropped in a grave and you cease to exist. That's not the picture in Scripture. And the beast was seized, Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast, he's the Antichrist, was seized. And with him, the false prophet, that's his compatriot, that's his John the Baptist who point men to this false Christ. And the beast was seized with him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The first two humans to enter the lake of fire is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And that's a thousand years before this event. And a thousand years later, when the millennial reign is over, they are still in this place of judgment. Why? Because as Paul says, the Lord Jesus will come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and he shall deal out eternal retribution to those who do not know God. This is an eternal place. People don't go there temporarily, and then they are later restored. 
No, this is forever. And twice over, it's called the lake of fire in our text. And back in verse 10, it's called the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, I told you that Hades is a temporary place in which a lost man goes. But eventually, Hades is cast into the lake of fire. To listen again to today's message from Revelation chapter 20, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV61. We are praying for a successful end to the COVID-19 pandemic through the rollout of the various vaccines. To that end, we're making plans to take two groups of interested Search the Scriptures listeners to Israel in September and October of 2021. If you'd like more information, visit us at searchthescriptures.org slash Israel. Tomorrow, the conclusion of The Destiny of the Doomed. Join us then as we search the scriptures.